Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. My name is Pascal Gagneux. I'm the Associate Director of CARTA, and it is my pleasure to welcome you all today for this public CARTA Symposium on Early Hominids. We're very fortunate to have a cast of eminent researchers from four different continents, and I'd like to thank all the speakers for traveling very far, in some cases, to uh, make this conference possible. And with no further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Fred Gage from the Salk Institute, CARTA co-director. Thank you, Pascal, and I'd like to add my welcome to, to you all. So CARTA, actually, is um, the Center for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny. So what's anthropogeny? Uh, the most recent definition of the term <coughs> from the Oxford English Dictionary is investigation of the origin of humans. However, as early as 1839 in the Hopper uh, Medical uh, District, the study it was defined as the study of uh, the generation of man. So we have a mission statement uh, for this uh, organization, and it is to use all rational and ethical approaches to seek all verifiable facts from all relevant disciplines to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. An important caveat here is while we minimize the complex organizational structures and hierarchies that often infest these kinds of in, uh, organizations and avoid any under, unnecessary, unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy, the hope is to get to the science and get the discussions uh, out front. This would not be possible without our, our major sponsors who've, uh, with great foresight, uh, sponsored this organization, uh, the graduate, school, graduate program that surrounds it, as well as these conferences. And the first one is the uh, G. Harold and Leah Mathers Charitable Foundation based in New York. And secondarily, but not least, Annette Merrill-Smith uh, is very much appreciated for her continued support of this effort. These individuals are, are foresight, foresighted and, and extremely important for us. Skeletons, as you know, are rare. Crania, as you've heard, are rare. Teeth are very common in the fossil record relative to other elements because they resist decay and destruction so well. There's good news and bad news in that. The good news is there are lots of teeth from lots of individuals, not just one female. The bad news is it takes an amazing, an extraordinary amount of work to squeeze biological information out of these hard tissues. And there is nobody more qualified to do that than our next speaker, Dr. Gensua from the University of Tokyo, who will be talking about the teeth. But there's more. He was also pivotal, not only to the reconstruction of the cranium, but also the analysis of the rest of the skeleton. So when Owen Lovejoy, scheduled to speak after Dr. Sua, 
told us on Monday that he was unable to make it to San Diego, I contacted Gen in Tokyo and asked him whether on his flight across the Pacific he might be able to do more than just his talk, but also Dr. Lovejoy's talk to effectively morph into Lovejoy and talk about the postcranial skeleton. Nobody more qualified than Gensua to do that. So you'll see him morph in about 20 minutes into Owen Lovejoy and talk about the rest of the skeleton. Welcome to San Diego, Dr. Gensua. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I will focus the talk on Ardipithecus ramidus, which has uh, somewhat considerably more available than the other earlier taxa. Uh, you have heard already about some of the similarities and differences about, for example, the Kadaba teeth and uh, ramidus. However, uh, taken in a broad perspective, compared to, for example, the African modern apes or Australopithecus, uh, we think that we see broadly similar morphology and evolutionary grade. So uh, with the somewhat more wealth of information available for Ramidus, uh, much of my talk will be focused on Ramidus. Um, another focus, there are many things we could discuss, but and I will go through some of them uh, after this slide. Uh, a considerable amount of time I would like to spend on uh, the phylogenetic position of Ramidus. And uh, this is because in our uh, science series of science papers, uh, for example, the dentition, we focus more on the paleobiological aspects, and uh, we did not talk too much about how we look at the teeth in order to infer the phylogenetic positions. Um, we, but after our publications, we learned that there were uh, some amount of skepticism about the position of these hominids here after the split with chimpanzees. And there were suggestions that it might be uh, some kind of Miocene ape um, continuing through time, so on and so forth. So I would like to take this opportunity to uh, add on and clarify some of those aspects. Um, so what how do we, uh, what can we tell from teeth? Uh, well, for example, uh, social behavior. Behavior, they do not fossilize itself, except for in very rare instances like footprints. Um, so uh, it is very difficult to infer a lot about especially social behavior. However, uh, we have already heard from uh, Dr. Haide Sawasi about the CP3 complex. Now let me explain a little bit more. The CP3 complex involves the upper and lower canines, which interlock. The upper canine is sharpened against the lower premolar, which is often very elongated. So it actually um, uh, serves to uh, home the uh, upper canine all through life. Now this uh, CP3 complex is present in um, all advanced primates, uh, monkeys and apes. And uh, they, the development of the complex uh, varies according to their behavior and social pattern. Most uh, notably, uh, there are lots of male and female dimorphisms. Males 
who have to compete for access to females for mating will tend to have very developed uh, canines. A uh, very extreme example is found in mandrills, where they actually, there is a very uh, insightful study published very recently um, that in mandrills, only males who are young and in their prime, for three or four years, they are able to, to sire actually offsprings. And so once the canine wears down, even a little bit, they start to uh, lose their uh, advantage in the competition for mates. Now that is probably a very extreme example. Mandrills are the most dimorphic in terms of body size as well as canine. However, uh, this shows that the CP3 complex is actually very uh, informative about uh, competition levels, aggression levels, so on. And so Artipithecus ramidus, uh, there are enough canines to, to tell that, for example, this uh, set of teeth is an example of male. And basically, uh, Artipithecus uh, back teeth are pretty much about the size of humans, maybe a little bit larger, but not too much. The canines are about 30% larger at the base, and uh, it is projecting more than humans. It is about the size of uh, female apes, female chimpanzee, for example. And however, it does not hone anymore. Uh, there are worn examples which clearly show that the weaponry has already uh, ceased to exist. So that tells us something about uh, Ardipithecus and other primates as well. Uh, we can say a host of things about dietary adaptation and uh, feeding ecology. Uh, for example, the frugivorous chimpanzees, they have inside, this is Ardipithecus, uh, uh, the same individual, look, the upper tooth row and the lower tooth rows seen from the occlusal surface. The uh, incisors of, for example, of frugivorous orangutans and chimpanzees are maybe about 25% larger. And so, again, Ardipithecus seems to be a relatively, have a generalized dentition, not to specialize for certain diets. The uh, cusp patterns are pretty uh, conservative. It's not spiky like leaf-eater or insectivorous primates. And it is a generalized uh, frugivore, omnivore kind of uh, morphology. And we look at a host of many things, uh, not only the uh, shape and uh, size, but also uh, internal structure, uh, wear patterns, uh, microscopic wear, enamel isotopic composition, and all these uh, avenues of investigation suggest that uh, Ardipithecus was not a heavy chewer, was not adapted to savanna kind of abrasive and hard foodstuffs like Australopithecus. So we think Ardipithecus teeth are a, a exhibit a adaptation that is distinct from Australopithecus. Uh, growth and development, uh, we can look at the, 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 the uh, timing of eruption to infer uh, certain aspects. Uh, and and uh, also teeth preserves the growth incremental markings as they grow, both the roots and the crowns. And uh, that enables us to investigate things like environmental stress. I won't go into details uh, at this time. And, and uh, finally, phylogenetic inferences uh, we, is uh, what I would like to focus for the rest, remainder of the talk. 
Uh, we look at external morphology, internal structure, and also the keyword to uh, how to infer phylogeny from these fossils is variation, how to interpret variation. And magnitude and pattern of variation is of prime importance. Also, we can trace these uh, fossil lineages through time, which is the, uh, how we test actual uh, phylogenetic hypotheses. Uh, variation, how to interpret it. That is where us specialists would differ from person to person and why we would differ in our conclusions or interpretations. Uh, we spend a lot of time trying to input patterns of variation into our software up here and before we output our, our, our um, conclusions. Um, this, for example, is, are all the same tooth position of one Australopithecus species. I won't say which species because it doesn't matter for this purpose of discussion. For example, if you have a tooth row, you, if we make casts, good quality casts, we cut out the, just this position or just the second molar or just the third molar, and then we, can, we know that all of these are all the, coming from the same jaw part. The, all of these come from the second molar, all of these come from the third molar. They're all the same species. Now, how do you tell the difference between M1, M2, and M3? And sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's more difficult. Different species have slightly different trends. And we have to have all that under control because we do not want to overread the fossil evidence. If you go for a different Australopithecus species, again, we can cut out just the M1. And so, for example, fossils do not come out with labels. Uh, these, uh, if we mix these, how can we separate them? And we can to an extent, and we can't to an extent. And that is the balance that we have to always be uh, worried about. Uh, for example, if you have a tooth row, some, this, these are all orangutan tooth rows, lower tooth rows. This individual has a smaller M1, bigger M2, and even bigger M3. This is a very small tooth individual of the same orangutan species. Uh, M1 and M2 is about similar size. M3 is much smaller. Now, if these came out from the ground uh, in isolated, uh, how would you tell apart? Or if it came out of the ground in tooth rows, uh, if you found just this, you might say, oh, this species is characterized by big M3s. But if you have a series of teeth, then you know that it's doesn't characterize the species itself. So you have to be very careful, and, and it's always an iterative process where you, you make a hypothesis saying, we think these features characterize the species. You find more, and then you refine it, or you confirm it, so on and so forth. At the end of the day, there will be lots of overlap of variation in these features. And so it's, uh, with, when you're working with limited sample sizes, it's a matter of how insightful you can be as to what might be the range of variation if you find more fossils. And you, you're always testing yourself and confirming and modifying. Now, uh, with this confounding factor of uh, variation, it's, it's confounding, but it's also enlightening. So how do we deal with uh, uh, trying to, to, to find the correct phylogeny? Uh, one thing, we there's no... Um, set protocol to this. Everybody has their own slightly different methodologies and uh, inclinations. 
Uh, with the work with Ramirez and others, at the end of the day, uh, we are starting to rely more on, for example, extreme, distinct, and or rare morphologies. For example, a real example that we are applying, gorilla teeth have very high and pointy cusps because for a large-bodied pri- uh, ape, it, is very, it has very unusual teeth that are, are adapted for or shredding uh, fibrous material or folding fibrous material into manageable swallowable, swallowable chunks of food. So if, you're, if you want to identify a uh, gorilla ancestor, the place to look for is a morphological element, an element that has morphologies that have extreme morphologies that would be evolving rapidly at some point of its history then you have a chance of being able to identify correctly an early member of that lineage. And so uh, we are, pl- uh, are, are focusing into some of the fossils using those kind of approaches. Uh, with hominids, uh, the place, one place to look for is a CP3 because we know from an ape ancestry it turned into a female-like ape condition first and then progressively into a, a very uh, small underdeveloped complex like we see in modern humans. So for hominids, it's, it's, the canine complex is always very useful. Okay, so why do we think that Ramidus is on the Australopithecus side of the pan split for sure? Relative, relative to body size, male Ramidus canines are smaller than in any uh, old world monkey or ape. Sexual dimorphism, dimorphism is weak or very little in shape. And uh, this, again, is very unique. Functional honing is absent, as uh, Dr. Heidi Selassie has already uh, introduced, so on and so forth. So uh, one of the reasons we think Romulus is uh, hominid for sure is its CP3 complex. Um, another uh, place way of uh, approaching teeth and phylogeny is you test for homology of the structure by structural analysis. If you examine the uh, proposed similarities in more detail, if, it's, if it does not have a common heritage, you would f- often find differences in the details of that feature. For example, uh, enamel thickness. Uh, Ramidus enamel is thinner than Australopithecus. This is a 3D mapping of enamel thickness where we take uh, micro CT scans of teeth in about 30 micron intervals. And then we separate the internal dentine surface from the enamel, and we make a uh, enamel thickness map all along, uh, along the uh, crown. Um, the red is thicker enamel, so you can see that the Ardipithecus Romulus enamel is much thinner than Australopithecus. Uh, we published about that without this comprehensive data uh, in, in the 1990s. And then uh, there were uh, suggestions that maybe uh, Ramidus thin enamel is because it shares it with chimpanzees. Maybe it is an ape. So in, in, with the newer analysis, we uh, did considerable more work and investigated this in more detail. And chimpanzees, it turns out, has thinner enamel than Ramidus, but also a very different pattern. Uh, it has a very wide occlusal basin with thin enamel, which effectively forms a... Uh, very broad basin, which is suitable in crushing 
fruits. And also it keeps a, uh, at the rim enough topography of the tea, so it is also useful in shredding uh, leaves. So we think that the chimpanzee condition is uh, different from the Ramadus condition, which has cinnar enamel, but in pattern is more similar to Australopithecus. Okay, um, the, the final test for phylogenetic hypothesis would be uh, continuity through time. And for this, you need a sample to assess the variation and how the variation uh, relates to different fossil assemblages. And, uh, for example, uh, the canine and lower P3 morphologies of Ramidus are derived towards the direction of Australopithecus phenetic details. And there's a more, we think we can see a morphological continuity from around 6 million years to the Australopithecus age, around 3 to 4 million years. So uh, we have already uh, learned about the uh, primitive uh, Kadaba uh, uh, canine, which is basically at the female ape level of morphology. Uh, the Ramidus one canines get a little bit shorter. Uh, the basal size is about the same, but it still had very rugged lingual topography, uh, uh, reminiscent of the more primitive condition. When you get to 4 million year uh, anamensis, uh, sometimes you get similar ones, other times you get more flatter uh, spatulate canines, and in afferensis it grades into even more spatulate and, and rounded uh, corners, and so on and so forth. So we, we think we can trace the evolution through time, which also uh, confirms or corroborates uh, the phylogenetic hypothesis based on shared and not shared features. The same with the uh, lower premolar. Um, these are three examples of the Ramadus uh, condition. This one is uh, very asymmetric. And for, I don't have chimpanzees on this slide, but if we, found, if we have chimpanzees, some will look very similar to that condition. Um, this one is from a clusal view is relatively similar to that one, which is afarensis. However, if you look at it from the side, it is much more taller and more primitive in that regard. This one is very similar to anamensis from a clusal view. Again, if you look at it from the side, it is a little bit taller, showing that it is not anamensis. However, uh, we can see that there is enough variation and it grays into the Australopithecus condition. Um, so at all the elements, we can see this uh, kind of uh, transition from Ramidus to Australopithecus. Um, and this is upper molars, again, Kadaba and uh, Ramidus. If we mix them, this is an example where it would be very difficult to separate them. With Australopithecus and Ramidus, uh, sometimes we'll, we will be able to separate them. If we have samples, we can characterize them pretty well, we think. Uh, Australopithecus has thicker enamel. It gets increasingly thicker from anamensis to afarensis. However, if you have a single molar and just mix it, and if I were to told, okay, what do you think about this? Well, I would not set my life on it at all. Okay, um, lower M3 is the same kind of thing. So to summarize, uh, we think 
we see a transition from Ramidus to Australopithecus, in, at least in terms of the teeth. With the lower of limbs, the foot, we have that whopping, grasping foot. Uh, the hip, we have a, a mosaic of features, hominid-like bipedal features, more primitive climbing features, as we have already heard. Uh, some people think the 4.4 million Ramidus to 4.2 million Australopithecus transition would be too dramatic, given these uh, body parts. Um, the situation seems to be that uh, the lower limb features, there may be a big change. Upper limbs, probably more subtle changes. And the dentition and parts of the cranium, the variation probably tends to grade into from Ramidus to Australopithecus. Um, so we think that it still is not impossible that a 4.4 to 4.2 million transition may or may not have taken place. Uh, we cannot say that for sure. But we think that Ardipithecus ramidus, the condition as a species, is a very good potential ancestral condition for the Australopithecus lineage. It could have split earlier than the Aramis ramidus sample and then uh, became Australopithecus. So uh, to answer the uh, question of wh what phylogenetic position Ramidus would have taken place, we think it, we can securely say it is after the pan split onto the hominid side. And this is a, a very basic question, but a question that uh, we would like to have uh, it cleared because Dependent on this position, the interpretation of everything else will change. <music> Professor Owen Lovejoy will not be with us. Um, Dr. Lovejoy's talk was uh, on your program, Locomotion and Behavioral Ecology of the Earliest Hominids. Now, it is virtually not possible for me to, to take his talk as such, but I will try to uh, talk about aspects of uh, evolutionary significance of the Ramadus material. Now, um, Professor Lovejoy, he, I, I, I have had the pleasure of working with him intensively over the past decade while we were trying to, um, to go over the Ramadus material. And um, he is obviously, a, some of you know, uh, very uh, broad and deep, not only in his anatomical and functional morphology, biomechanics, so on, but also starting from morphogenetics to genomes to um, social ecology and behavior to evolution, evolutionary theory. Uh, it was a truly... Um, Remarkable experience. I have been privileged of uh, interacting with him over his analysis. And I cannot do any justice by filling in his slot for sure. So my talk will be on some very basic aspects of some of the uh, postcranial material and its locomotor significance, and then trying to point out some, some of the more immediate uh, interpretations that stem from it. So uh, once we, as in my previous talk, we were able to place Ramidus in the cladogram uh, securely, 
we can start thinking about, okay, what is it, what does it mean to be Australopithecus, meaning uh, after Ramadas, what kind of evolutionary significance happened? Uh, or we can look back, and, and as uh, Dr. Asfal was uh, uh, discussing, and try to um, gain insights about the or origin of human, the human lineage itself. Now, going back to the uh, Ramadas material, this, this remarkable partial skeleton uh, is a, uh, Dr. Lovejoy would be saying, is a treasure trove of information. And um, we have almost a complete hand, if you combine both sides, Almost all of the foot, we are missing a few key elements like the calcaneus. However, we have almost all of the rest. Uh, we have uh, much of the major limb bones. We lack a humerus. However, we have a different individual with both forearm and the humerus. So we can scale this and fit it into the skeleton fairly accurately. Uh, we have a, much of the pelvis which is somewhat crushed and we have received some amount of criticism for attempting an ambitious reconstruction based on, on the crushed material. However, uh, the most important aspect of this uh, the pelvis is preserved on the original itself and we could say almost all of the things we said without this reconstruction. Uh, the skull is damaged, as we have just heard, but we were able to, to actually do a reconstruction based on the original pieces. So we have almost a, the whole body. We lack much of the axial skeleton. However, if we, especially if, if we accept the phylo, phylogenetic positions that we just discussed about, much of the Australopithecus condition probably obtains to Ramidus as well. So this is a um, reconstruction image that we worked together with Jay Maternus, the uh, uh, natural history artist, and it, we feel it portrays the skeleton fairly accurately, even from a scientific viewpoint. Um, we know that uh, it was about uh, 120 centimeters uh, tall, or 120, 100, maybe a little bit larger, uh, the body weight we quote in our papers are 50 kilograms. But, and I have received comments in, in, from many people that isn't that a little bit heavy for 120 centimeters? Is it, was Ardi obese or what? And the answer is don't worry about the number. Uh, we're talking, after all, we don't know the body mass. We, all we know is the size of the bones. And what we did is we tried to because we have all these elements, we tried to come up with a balanced overall size factor of bony size. And if you plug that into a reliable uh, regression, then the number becomes 50. But it doesn't mean it was really 50. Basically, it was chimpanzee size. So we have a chimpanzee size uh, creature, uh, but it had some differences from chimpanzees. Uh, we know that this large, fairly large individual was a, um, a female because we have enough canines to be able to, to model the degree of canine dimorphism and establish probabilistically that this individual is a female. Um, 
We know from uh, the, the close to 10 individuals represented uh, in, this, uh, in the Ramadas assemblies that this female was one of the bigger, close to the biggest uh, individuals that has been found, especially in linear dimensions. There are some similar length ones that are a little bit more robust, which are probably males. So uh, again, this is diff- a little bit different from Australopithecus, and it's in that sense more similar to chimpanzees, that there seems to be rather little amount of body size dimorphism. Uh, the males and females were not too much different, at least in linear body size. Uh, in terms of uh, limb proportions, uh, this l- red line is a line going from the shoulder joint to the wrist, and we take the same length to the hip joint, and it stops short of the ankle. So uh, Ramidus uh, Ardipithecus had a, a arm that was shorter than the lower limb, which is opposite the situation of chimpanzee gorillas, especially gorillas and orangutans have much longer um, upper arms, I mean arms. So uh, that is the, the entire uh, overview of the skeleton. If we look at individual body parts very quickly, the hands, we already heard about the, the long uh, hand and, and palm. The fingers are longer, but the palm is especially long. This is a bone called metacarpals, which are, are, are in here. And uh, we, the chimpanzees have these uh, elongated um, hand because of their climbing behavior and their suspensory behavior. They are very acrobatic in the trees. And being a large-bodied ape, being acrobatic in the trees, you need this kind of hand. Um, associated with this, if you look into details of these small bones in the, in the wrist area, there are many uh, features of the articulation and ligamentous uh, attachments which are unique to these suspensory large-bodied apes. Um, Ramidus does not show those features. Um, on the ground, or even in the trees when walking on fours, chimpanzees put their knuckles on the ground, which we call knuckle walking, in, in this kind of uh, hand posture. This creates a certain uh, articulations that is very uh, particular of this kind of locomotion. Uh, I can see here. And again, Ramidus does not have uh, those features. So uh, Ramidus has a hand that is very generalized. It is not, it does not have, it's different from modern apes. Uh, a very dramatic uh, showing of this is in this small bone called a capitate, which is right in the middle of the wrist. We can uh, bend our hands like that, and these apes are less able to do this. We call this dorsiflexion. Uh, dorsiflexion is not the part, uh, is part of the uh, repertoire of these chimpanzees because they have a more rigid... Uh, articular system, and also the entire articular facet here is positioned differently. So we have a very uh, flexible arboreal hand in Ramis, as opposed to a uh, very strengthened, rigid, and but uh, useful in suspensory and climbing in chimpanzees. The foot, uh, we have uh, uh, 
it resembles chimpanzees in the big uh, divergent big toe. However, the midfoot is rather structured so that it can still push off when it was walking bipedally. So it did not have a longitudinal arch. Our foot and Australopithecus has a toe that is facing more forward and it has an arch to push off. It did not have that, but it had a different kind of structure that allowed uh, toe off on the lateral foot. Chimpanzees have very flexible midfoot area, which enables uh, uh, accommodation to various substrates. And so again, uh, there are these differences. The pelvis, uh, the upper pelvis is Australopithecus-like and lower pelvis is primitive. We already heard about that. One thing that has not been uh, introduced yet uh, is about the lordosis. The short and uh, wide pelvis uh, enables uh, these creatures to balance better when they are walking bipedally, but they also, it also enables the uh, spinal column to have a lumbar lordosis so you have an upright posture. This enables the center of gravity to pass directly on top of the hip and um, knee joints over the ankle so we can walk with extended hip and knees. And we think this was a case for Ardipithecus as well. The upper pelvis indicates that that was a case. Actually, modern apes, they are very good bipeds. Chimpanzees and bonobos, you see them on TV, they're just walking with backpacks on and everywhere. They just walk all over the place. And my primatologist friends tell, tell me that that's the case in the wild too, especially bonobos, they just walk all over the place bipedally. However, they always walk with a bent knee, bent, bent hip, bent knee gait because because of their um, specialization for arboreality, their, their lumbar region is very shortened and it's rigidified because if you're an acrobatic arboreal,ist with a big body, you will, you will break your back if, it's, if it is not strengthened. And so the ilium is especially elongated and there's basically no, no waist. You go from the bottom of the ribs almost directly to the pelvis. So... When you have that, you cannot lordose. Therefore, they walk with a bent knee, hip, bent knee gait. So, so Ardipithecus rhamnus and Ororin too, most likely, we think, uh, did walk very well with extended limbs. When we say rhamnus was a transitional biped or a primitive biped, people tend to think they were walking with bent knee as bent hips like apes, but that's, we don't think that is the case. Uh, it does have a, a more primitive uh, aspect, which is related to probably arboreality and climbing behavior. The ischium is very long. And what attaches here in the ischium is the muscles of the back of your thigh and the in, inside of your thigh, the uh, adductors and uh, the hamstrings. Now these muscles are, uh, this, this is a cross-section of the thigh area. This is human, this is chimpanzees. In um, quadrupedal uh, monkeys and apes and, and arboreal climbers, you have big muscle mass here to extend your, your uh, hip joints. In bipeds like humans and probably Australopithecus, we have more muscle mass on the front of the thigh to extend our knees when our limbs are extended. And so uh, the, the long ischium tells us that Ramadas probably uh, 
had not gone over this transformation yet, so it's it, part of the pelvis, it's, it went through the transition, part of it, it had not gone through the transition yet. The, we have s- several femoral remains, which also is indicating this, and also in the case of Aurorin. Uh, the femur of Orin and Romulus are in part primitive and they lack the human osteopithecus structural pattern. And if you look at the back of the femur, you can see that there's a sizable amount of muscle attachment area for the hamstrings and adductor muscles in both Orin and Romulus. Whereas in humans and osteopithecus, the quadriceps, the front part of the thigh muscles, uh, completely covers the, the uh, femur and, and forms what we call the linear aspera. In afarensis, most of the specimens are like that, although there are some variation. So the postcranial evidence, uh, when we look at it, we see that Ramidus was an upright walking biped, and it did not have a BHBK gait. It had an extended limb gait. There's no indication of knuckle walking, no indication of pan-like suspension in agile climbing. Now, interestingly, uh, the Miocene apes, we do not have a direct Miocene apes that we can plug in here. We have many branches that there are lots of debate about the phylogeny. But as a whole, Miocene apes, uh, we do not see the African ape-like pattern. So most likely... One hypothesis would be that the, the common ancestor of, of African apes and, and humans, LCA, was not as specialized as extant African apes. Now, this would be a surprise to some because, especially in the past decade, with the genomic information coming out, we are told chimps and humans differ by only 1% of base uh, DNA base pair sequence. And increasingly, we would expect that if you go back through time and phylogeny, we would find an ancestor that looks more like a chimpanzee. But the fossils are telling us that may not be the case. Alternatively, there is a possibility that the LCA was chimpanzee-like, and then it reverted back to the more Miocene ape-like condition. Um, that is, this is a, a, a realm where there probably will be active debate among the anthropologists, and ultimately it should be uh, testable by uh, the genomic evidence once some of the morphological basis, uh, the genetic basis, are, get unraveled better than today. We think that uh, this scenario is less likely because this would entail uh, acquisition of fairly special, highly specialized features of pan, which would make it more unlikely to adopt a uh, hominid-like uh, gait pattern. And some of the anatomies involve loss of certain structures in the chimpanzee-like uh, specialization, which would be probably morphogenetically difficult to evolve back. So probably we think the last common ancestor was not like extant African apes and that suspension in agile climbing evolved in pan and gorilla to a lesser degree to the gorilla separately as independent uh, evolution. Um, So to, to summarize, 
Uh, upright walking was a feature of these early hominids. They share with Miocene apes no knuckle walking, no pen-like uh, suspicion climbing, which indicates that these features evolved at the base of the pan clade. Um, what can we say from the cranial dental evidence? What can we add? We have already talked about the omnivorous, non-specialized dentition of the early hominids, which in turn suggests that the incisor size and molar structure of pan was again a uh, specialization on the African ape side, uh, I mean the chimpanzee side. So, so it seems that there have been an arboreal frugivorous feeding adaptation that enhance in the pan clade. Um, what can we add to this from a more behavioral aspect? This time, we find that certain features are shared by, by the chimpanzees, clade, and early hominids. Such features such as weak body size dimorphism, uh, reduced lower P3 of the CP3 complex. This implies that these were present at the common ancestral node uh, and behaviorally uh, probably females were transferring out of the groups and males were in a single group was more related, which enables less competition among, less uh, Intense intensity of com, uh, competition among males. Probably the females had uh, did not have sexual swelling, and sperm competition was probably mild, moderate. Why? Why? How do we infer these uh, uh, aspects? Uh, for example, if you look at the CP3 complex again, gorillas with very big canines, upper canines have Lower premolar, this is lower premolar size uh, against upper uh, motor size. Species like gorillas, which males have very large upper canines, also have large premolars to sharpen the upper canines. Very uh, peculiarly, uh, we found that chimpanzees have, males have relatively small P3s, which suggests that initially, the chimpanzee and both chimpanzee and the human ancestors had relatively modest degrees of CP3 development, and then chimpanzees secondarily enlarged their canines. Uh, if we look at skull size, uh, we were able to reconstruct the skull to, to get a reasonable estimate of overall size. We have body size, and we have cranial capacity estimate, and we, if we plot body size or cranial capacity here and cranial lengths here, we find that certain groups of primates have larger, relatively larger heads and faces. And again, the more aggressive, competitive species tend to have relatively large cranium. The Ardipithecus material plots here alongside uh, bonobos, which have one of the smallest heads of all of these primates. Now, uh, so from th those kind of uh, morphological inferences, we, we think that uh, the common ancestor had relatively weak amounts of body size dimorphism and moderately developed CP3 complex. This, again, uh, 
implies that in the chimpanzee lineage something happened. For example, sexual swelling, enhanced promiscuity, strong sperm condition, increased male aggression was probably a pan feature. Uh, further down the, down the evolutionary evolution, the red parts are what we know from the anatomy, and these are, are some of the uh, behavioral scenarios that we uh, can deduce. Probably uh, chimpanzees have larger canines, uh, evolved larger canines, and uh, even larger faces, along with uh, increased male aggression. The bonobo lineage reduced both dental and cranial size, and they have very lower levels of aggression and a very unique reproductive parameters that enable this decre- uh, decreased aggression. And in the human uh, hominid clade, we think that there was unique uh, derivation of upright walking and loss of honing with the CP3 complex, probably. And this, uh, Dr. Lovejoy would have uh, extensively discussed this from all aspects and from evolutionary theory, that probably a, this very human-like features evolved in line with, uh, together with female re- reproductive crypsis, uh, which enabled pair bonding and male parenting. Uh, those are some, some of the uh, major features are discussed extensively in Dr. Lovejoy's paper. Okay, I, it's about all for my talk. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sua. It's, it's remarkable to be able to cover as much of the skeleton as he was able to cover and as much of the new evidence about human evolution that, uh, that's been squeezed out of the ground and then squeezed out of the laboratory. So thank you again, again, for, for keeping our program coverage intact. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.